Today's episode was also a video interview, and this one you may want to check out because the guest, Lena Sisko, does an evaluation of John McAfee and an individual he has been accused of hiring for committing murder. Having the extra visualization while she does the analysis may be beneficial for you too as well. If you want to check that out and the other live streams and things like that I have going on, it's on youtube.com slash Eric Hunley, or just search for Eric Hunley on YouTube. But for now, I bring you Lena Cisco. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. All right, today I'm thrilled to have Lena Cisco. Now, Lena was introduced to me by previous guest, Greg Hartley, and Greg taught at Sears School and did a lot of interrogation. And Lena also did interrogation and did it down in Gitmo. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Now, interesting trivia fact, I actually was in Camp X-Ray a few years before you were there. Really? I never set foot inside the camp, but I took care of Cubans when they were actually Cuban refugees that were all over the island at the time. And Camp X-Ray is where we had the Cubans who had been exiled or sent back murderers, rapists, you know, whatever. They were in the United States and they got booted and got caught trying to come back in. So I just yeah. thought that was an interesting piece of trivia that it was, I can't remember, it was 95 or 96. It was so long ago. I don't remember the year, but yeah. I was there as a cook and we had to feed a hundred and some odd thousand of them every day. Yeah, we ended up using that prison and quickly found out it's not going to be conducive to this type of prison that we need. So they immediately started building Camp Delta. Ah, okay. See, that's interesting. Now, we had other camps, too. And that that's why I didn't know if they tore them down in the years. But we had, like, I think there was a Camp Mike, Camp Charlie. We had multiple camps for the normal Cubans, and they had literally tent cities. And it yeah. was quite fascinating yeah. because, I mean, you had doctors and lawyers and just entire cross-section of society going through there. X-ray yeah. was the only one that they had the you know, razor wire on the top and the um, chain link and all around. It, it wasn't quite as fun yeah. as the other places. Yeah. But that leads me into the first question. Because you were in Gitmo and you went down there as an interrogator. And you have mentioned before that, of course, everybody says, well, wait a minute, you're a female. Hard to, really, people can tell you are. <laughs> Hard to imagine. But <laughs> there is a reason that people have that feeling. And I wanted to ask you, what did you think it would be like before you went down? Um, You know, I didn't have any expectations. Because even when I went through my interrogation training, we I got trained on conventional warfare. We didn't, we didn't have training on how to deal with terrorists. So right. I knew that my training was going to change or the setting environment in which I was going to use my training was going to be hugely different. Um, and so I had no expectations because I didn't know what to expect. Well, what did you think about the people? I mean, honestly, is that not the most frightening possible enemy in the world? The one who will kill anybody indiscriminately around you? care so little about their own life that they will they will take planes and crash into buildings. Yeah. I, did you have any kind of fear? 
You know, initially, um, I guess on my way there, I did have a little bit, but I knew that I was going to be in an interrogation room, which um, the detainees were going to be shackled. Right. So just like in a normal prison system. And so I never worried about my safety. We had guards around all the time. Um, When they were in my interrogation booth, we had them uh, shackled to a deadbolt in the floor and they were far enough away. And I had panic buttons in my room. Um, Guards were right down the hall. I never feared for my life. Never. So out of curiosity, then, was the I'm going to guess they probably came off as relatively normal. Yeah, it, it literally, it became, I'm sitting across from another human being. Now, that human being is, you know, drastically different in many ways with ideologies, with, um, you know, their view against the Westerners. But mm-hmm. when you come down to it, it's just another human. True. And, well, we have fun. I have friends who will refer to them as fundamentalists. And I think that's such a good term yeah. because we have fundamentalists, too. Oh, yeah. And yes. people who are very much into the Abrahamic religions and yeah. strong, have strong, strong feelings. So yeah. it sort of makes sense. And ironically, I could see where your being a lie detector would be very effective because the fundamentalist mentality would want to be truthful. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe. Yes and no. I'll tell you what I did stay, steer away from. I avoided any type of discussion about religion or politics because I'm not going to change people. That's right. like the number one rule. I can't change your beliefs, nor do I want to have your beliefs. You're what you're, you know, you're human. You can have that. But yeah. what I am after and what I will get is the truth. I want to know when the next attack is coming. I want to know why you did what you did or your beliefs. That's what I do want to know. So if I can get you to a point where I've established that rapport, I've gained your trust already and you open up and start talking to me about those things, then we're good. But when it comes down to it, you can keep your beliefs because right now you're in prison and we're not going to allow you to hurt any more Americans or anybody for that matter, even fellow Muslims. So I think when you come to um, people oftentimes want to challenge a belief, Mm -hmm. seems crazy. And they're like, well, why would you believe that? You know, don't you realize that you're killing innocent people? You can't win that battle. You right. cannot change people. So why bother? It's a waste of time and energy and effort. Focus on what you can influence, and that is getting information. Well, you brought up a good point, and I um, I believe it's Albert or Aldert Vrige. Yeah. And he mentioned that you have to treat terrorism separately or questioning mm-hmm. terrorists separately or differently than a criminal. Because a criminal, you're trying to find out what they did a terrorist, you're trying to find out what their intentions are or what they're about to do. How did you um, go about that different focus? So actually, he's amazing. And I, I do. I study a lot of his work. I read a lot of his work. I would disagree with that one statement, though, because I also train all of law enforcement and I have um, interviewed slash interrogated, whatever term you want to use, it really the same, um, criminals and suspects. And the intent and objective is exactly the same. Uh, number one, I want information from you. I want your motivations and intent. So when I train law enforcement, I'm trying to get them out of the mindset that they just want a confession. You don't, don't want to do that. So in my three-day class, the focus is to be more strategic in nature to find out intent, motivations, and then the follow-on acts or people coming in to replace you know, other people. And when you really look at terrorists versus gang members, mm-hmm. exactly the same. 
the mm-hmm. camaraderie, the um, allegiance. Exactly. There's mm-hmm. no difference. No difference other than culture. What's interesting, you, you said, what was it, interrogation, or you said another term um, that could be the same. But I, and I talked to Greg Hartley about this too, I believe. I consider interrogation to be a form of negotiation. Mm, yeah, I could see that. The only difference is you have um, a smaller window of things you're selling. Yes, I I think I sold tea um, and a change of cell um, and extra blankets. Uh, and also the fact of just owning up to being a human being and taking responsibility for your actions at the end of the day. I like to tell people when I talk to them, like, listen, don't be a coward. If you did what you did, then own up to it. Sure. Right. If you don't have the film blank, whatever word you want to use, if you don't have the courage to sit here and be responsible for your actions, that's what makes you look really bad. That's what you should be ashamed of. And so, and I'll use that in approach technique as well. What's interesting, and I thought it was an interesting direction you took with your book that you started out with saying, here's how you lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what was the intention of going with the flow of like, well, first let's discuss, uh, was it to help understand what a lie actually was? So then you can talk about perceiving it. What was your intent for that? I think order? I wanted the readers to first anchor to the feelings and emotions that they experience when they lie. Because if you're human, you lie. Oh, yeah. Every one of us does. And if you tell me you don't, you're lying. Or you're, that, you're not being honest with yourself. So I think I wanted to set off the book to say, listen, check in with yourself for a minute. And what do you experience when you lie? And what do you do when you lie? How do you change up your words? How do you lie by omission? And so what, by saying, hey, here's how you lie, people are like, oh, yeah, I do that. I did that. I never did that, but I might try it. So I just want them to reconnect with their human side and think, okay, I lie. I have lied. And I've felt like this in the past. And I've said this. And I've done that. And now I'm going to find out how it really comes across to other people. And what to look for when it's being done to me. And also my tells. I'll find out a little bit more about myself, too. Okay. And you describe liars as two types, uh, imploders and exploders, I believe. And I I would say that imploders, you would probably rate as being the majority of society. And exploders are specialists. Do you want to go into that? I think um, you can use those terms interchangeably with uh, regular and powerful liars, too. Powerful, yes. Yeah, an imploder slash regular liar. It's just most of us, because when we lie, we don't like how we feel about lying. So when we lie, usually it will trigger our stress response system. And we have all the stuff going on in the body with the limbic system and our adrenaline and our cortisol and all that stuff. We have these physiological effects, and it just doesn't make us feel good. Um, And then you have these powerful liars. And powerful liars don't mean that they're really good at lying because I can still catch them. All it means is that they don't feel that stress and anxiety when they're lie when they lie. Because a regular liar is usually worried about, can I keep up the lie? Can I make up the lie right now? Is the lie going to sound convincing? What are they going to question me on? How many details can I remember? And stress, 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 right? And we go into cognitive overload. A powerful liar is like, eh, whatever. I can wing it. I can choose. I'm a people person. People love to listen to me because when I get through this lie, I get X. I get more money. I get the job I wanted. Um, I hurt. 
person Y. Whatever the outcome is, they're so mm-hmm. focused on the reward of the lie that all the stress that comes along with lying isn't there. It's there, but it's not there as it is with a regular liar. And so that's really the difference. And when you get these powerful liars, like take our nation's spies, for example, they're all lying for some type of reward, right? Mm-hmm. Whether monetary, whether it's just um, affiliation to their culture or country, whatever it is, it's for sure. a reward. And so that's why our famous nation's spies have passed polygraphs every single year because they're not getting that um, the stress response system mm-hmm. being activated because they're not worried about it. But then you put a person like me or you and we're like, oh, God, we're lying. And we don't st- we start to stress out and worry about it. And then we start pinging all these physiological responses to the stress on a polygraph machine. And so that's why it'll work there. That actually leads into um, a perfect analogy. I had a former guest on. I think I asked you to check it out. It was a challenge for an interview. He he is very, very clear. I I do like a a challenge interview occasionally, but um, I do believe in what he's doing. I think that he brings up valid points, and that's why I ran the interview. His name is Doug Williams, and he is an anti-polygraph crusader. Um, I I can't think of a a better way to put it because he is that passionate. He's served time in prison for supposedly teaching people how to beat the polygraph, which is ironic because if you convict him, and he's right, if you convict him for teaching people to do it, you in essence are saying that it is in fact beatable and not a true tool. And he actually testified before Congress and helped make it illegal. That's why corporations cannot use the polygraph. But ironically, the government can. Right. Now, his issue, and I, I wanted to discuss with you because you use, you've been around both. Yes. People who are in a very stressful situation may well fail the polygraph mm-hmm. and be completely, utterly innocent. Often they really are. I mean, if you, imagine you go in, you have an anthropology master's, I believe. Yeah, I have um, a master's in uh, archaeology and a bachelor's in anthropology. Okay, now let's say it was, instead of that, it was nuclear science and you were trying to work for a nuclear reactor and you failed the polygraph. It's gone. Yeah, gone. Uh, even though you were tr- completely truthful, you failed the polygraph, your whole yeah. career, everything is wiped out. So that is kind of why he is fighting it. Yeah. Now, it, it's serious because I have known people to have taken it and oh, not so much fail it, but come out as inconclusive. And so I don't know if you know that I worked on a TV show for three years as an expert witness, and I had to interrogate litigants to see if they were lying. Couples court. Yes, couples court. And, oh, I watched I, a couple. Oh, okay, cool. How was so, that? It was, it was a blast, I will tell you. Um, some of my litigants, absolutely crazy. But it was so much fun. And the thing is, is it's legitimate. It's real. So it wasn't canned as if we were like, okay, well, we're going to pretend you're going to lie about this. And we're going to put that. Now, obviously, they want ratings. So they made it a little more sexy, a little more dramatic. But when they sat across from me, it was 100% legit. And I had to break them or discover the lies and get to the truth. And so usually when we would do that, they would have... Me, um, as an expert witness, I was the only interrogator. And then they would have um, either an eye detect person or a voice stress analysis person or a polygrapher or a private investigator. Mm-hmm. Um, 
forensics person. So we'd always have like a couple of experts for each case. And I often worked with uh, a good friend of mine. He was a polygrapher and I just, he's amazing. I have such respect for him. And usually when I would get out of the interrogation, I would walk over to him. I said, listen, when you ask him on this question and this question, he's going to pop negative, but he's going to pop positive for these other three. That's what I think. And nine times out of 10, we were right in sync. The machine validated what I saw and what I determined. Well, and that, it's interesting thing because, and I don't know if you've heard of Chase Hughes. If not, I will definitely have to introduce him. He's local. Yeah, um, Greg mentioned his name, but I don't know him. Okay, well, he's actually in the area where we both live. And um, as he put it, and I I would agree with it, and Doug Williams actually, too, is the polygraph is a tool. Yes. It's the examiner. And you can use that tool. I don't Have you ever seen the show The Wire? Uh, No. Or the show Homicide? They're both done by David Simon. There was a funny part in it, though where they had somebody come in, he was a drug dealer and kid and they had a copy machine. And so they asked him a question, they hit the button and it spit out lie. What? How does <laughs> and the reason why I bring that up is some people could argue that that tool is equally as effective. Yes. I will tell you what I used to game boy and get Oh, did you? Yes. Oh, and- break it down. Tell me, tell me. Okay. Tell okay. me a story. Uh-huh. As soon as I had another interrogator come in and we were doing the ruse that the Game Boy was a polygraph and we had this little thing hooked up to his finger, like it was nothing. And we had, we drew out a plot. It was a quad and he had to point to yes and no and all this, these answers. And we used the Game Boy to determine whether or not he was lying or telling the truth. So at the very first question, we had the Game Boy light up and say it was a lie. And he just went, oh, my gosh, like, like he panicked so bad. He's like, take the thing off me. I'll tell you the truth. And all the truth came just from a Game Boy. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so that does substantiate it. It's a prop. And, yeah. and Chase Hughes yeah. is also saying that, too, that yeah. it's not the time <laughs> in the exam. It's right before and right after. Yeah, people are so petrified of the of that exam exposing them that they usually just give up everything that they know. And it's a great tool to be used that way. <laughs> well, and I guess that's Doug Williams' angle. He calls it a rubber hose. Yeah, yeah. Now, I will also say this, though. I mean, I've worked with polygraphers, and again, they that machine's results have mm-hmm. been quite in, in sync with mine. I sure. was in Dubai. And I was working with a private investigator and helping them on a big financial case. And so we were sitting in an intercontinental continental hotel, or I can't remember the hotel. Anyway, we're in a hotel conference room and we're asking our person questions. And as we had 10 questions for him and I was watching all the nonverbals and listening to his verbal responses. And on two questions, I'm like, Mm-mm, th- they're lies, right? He popped the mm. set on me for two questions. Well, wouldn't you know the machine? said exactly the same results, pop deceptive on two questions. So his his anxiety increased on those two right. questions. So it picks so, up stress, not necessarily lies. It picks up stress. And that's the thing. A polygraph machine, and any polygrapher will tell you this. My friend that worked in couple sport, they will all tell you this. It is not a lie-detecting machine. It mm. is not. It's never been, and it has never been. It cannot be called that. All it does is detect physiological responses to stress, sweating, your blood pressure, your heart rate, um, that sort of stuff. That is it. 
And if you don't stress, the machine has nothing to read. And if you do, it'll show spikes. And if you're under drugs or the influence of alcohol or anything else, it's not going to work. Yes. And, and uh, yes. actually a little Valium is often used to help. Yeah. And even <laughs> her, if they have, a, they have a certain way in how they have to introduce the information and ask the questions, if that method is not exact, the results will not be accurate either. That's true. And Doug Williams, by the way, same guy, what he would teach, he got out of a birthing book. No, the um, breathing method. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I can do, I've taken mindfulness training and I actually train in mindfulness techniques. And there's a thing called the calming breath, the four, seven, eight. You breathe in for a count of four, you hold it for a count of seven, and you blow out through your mouth very slowly for a count of eight. Instantly hmm. calms you right down. Instantly. I can be on a blood pressure cuff because I have high blood pressure. I don't know why. Um, but I can be <laughs> on a blood pressure cuff and immediately whoosh, drop hmm. my and my blood pressure just by doing that breathing. That's weird. My Ironically, I used to have to donate plasma when I was younger and irresponsible to get money. But <laughs> you had to have uh, enough blood pressure. I've always had really low. Ooh. So I had the opposite effect. I would always flinch my stomach, you know, clenching it to get my blood pressure jacked up enough to where I could donate. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'd be perfect candidate then. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You'd be like, oh, here, here's some extra. <laughs> Come on down. <laughs> Speaking of um, truthfulness or not, or otherwise, yeah. I asked you to check out a couple of videos, um, yeah. previous uh, guest that I had on, uh, John McAfee, yeah. and I would love to start with his. It's a very yeah. short segment, so I completely understand that it's easy to take out of context, whatever. You don't have a lot of general thing, but what was your impression of the segment? So... In that video, I didn't need any more because I'm a word girl and I put a lot of emphasis on people's words and how they use them. Usually when people lie, they're always thinking about body language and trying to control body language. People forget to focus on the words. Your words will always give your lie. Always. Because people can't think of controlling them, number one, and it's almost impossible, number two. And we can control on what we want to say, mm -hmm. but the indicators of deception leak right out. So here's a great example in this video. Did you kill Greg Fall? I barely knew the man, and why would I kill him? He was a neighbor that lived 200 yards down the beach. He was asked by the interviewer, did you kill Greg, and I forgot his last name, um, Falk? And instead of saying, so that's a yes and no question, right? Mm -hmm. Did you kill someone? Yes and no question. A truthful person just gives you the answer. Liars typically want to convey. I mean, convince you, right? Truth tellers mm -hmm. convey, liars convince. A truth teller will usually answer a yes or no question with a yes or a no and be mm -hmm. done with it. But a liar says, nah, I need more than that. They're not going to buy my yes or no, so I'll have mm -hmm. to convince them and oversell. Or I'm not going to commit to a yes or no ad Oh, in fact, I'm going to do a smoke screen or I'll add some fluff in. So his response was this. Did you kill Greg? He says, I barely knew the man. And why would I kill him? He was a neighbor that lived 200 yards down the beach. There were five indicators of deception in that one sentence. Number one, I and I teach this. It's like my second most common verbal indicator of deception. Refusal to answer yes and no. Right. You see it in Anthony Weiner. You've seen it in Bill Clinton. You know, they just won't say, uh, yes, I sent the tweet or no, I didn't. You see in Hillary Clinton. No, I didn't wipe the service clean. She cannot say 
at one time that she didn't wipe the service clean. Uh, Anthony Weiner never could say, I didn't send the tweet. It's so simple, right? Just say no. But for some right. reason, we can't because it doesn't make us feel good. So he avoids that. Number two, he calls them the man. Now, when you get into pronouns, a man indicates, I have no idea who this guy is. It's unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. But the man indicates, I know this man, right? And of course, we know that he does. But in this case, it's distancing language. Because what he could have said and should have said was, I barely knew Greg. But he did. He said, the man, right? Like when Bill Clinton said, I didn't have sex with that woman. (laughs) Right. We know, you know, her name, Bill. Um, This guy, John, we know, you know, his name. Why aren't you saying it? Greg Fall, by the way. That's it. Greg Fall. Yes. And it's when we don't say that name, we want nothing to do with it. We want to distance ourselves from the lie, from this negative thing. So let's hit number two. He says the man. Hit number three, and then he asks our question, right? It's a stalling technique. Um, Well, why would I kill him, Mm -hmm. right? Well, that's what I just asked you. So you repeated the question back to me. So it's a stalling technique. Number four, he adds fluff, right? Well, he was a neighbor that lived blah, 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 blah. I didn't ask you that, John. And we all know that he was your neighbor, which is why we're having this interview. So there's no reason for you to add that fluff in right now and just keep talking about nothing instead of answering the question, right? So it's a diversion tactic. And I, I will train law enforcement about the fluff. I call it fluff. Right. Unnecessary information. And then finally, he talks about a neighbor. He was a neighbor that lived 200 downs. Again, a neighbor, not my neighbor, mm-hmm. right? When we have a lack of I and my, which are possessive pronouns, it means we're, again, distancing ourselves from the thing or the event that we don't like. So five indicators of deception. I don't believe them. Now there's more to the story too, which I think just really, really makes him look guilty. And as an animal lover, you would appreciate it too. Oh, I The yeah. neighbor poisoned his dogs. I know. Do you think you would not know who that neighbor is if you suspected that they were poisoning your dogs? He yeah. would be so, in my personal mind, he would be so focused. Oh, I would know every yep. intimate detail. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. Uh, I know I would. And I, let me tell you, if anyone <laughs> my animals, watch out. I still won't buy Nike. Yeah. Oh, why? Because they immediately sponsored Michael Vick, and I have problems with that. Well, I don't touch Nike. I'm an A6 girl, but uh, yeah, I do nothing Nike. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I think it's disgusting. And that's a whole nother topic. If you want to get into it, we totally can. I'm an animal savior. Uh, <laughs> but, for the last 15 years of my life at organizations and in animal care. And yeah, huge topic with me. I'm, I I know that when I was researching you. So I was like, yeah, that would probably trigger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it actually made me feel less strongly about it, believe it or not. Yeah, I believe it. I so believe it's, it. And, and that's terrible to say, obviously, but it did. Now, you did mention something about distancing language, and I was, you know, yeah. I've been reading the book, and there are times, and I think you do admit that you have to kind of really baseline and look at exceptions all the time, because I can't help but think about a few of the terms, like in an argument with the wife, somebody tell that woman, Blah, 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 especially in the middle of a divorce, whatever. I I think that that is a a natural thing. Sometimes it's not necessarily a deceitful thing, but literally I 
I have agreed. shut her. She is dead to me, blah, 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 or whatever. Agreed. Totally agree. 100%. Which is why when we get into the second video, you're going to hear a lot of, I had to go watch that thing three times. <laughs> that was there, trickier. Yeah, there's indicated the indications of truthfulness and there's indications of lying. There's both in that video. Mm. But I think I think I've uncovered what I think the lie is about. Okay. Well, and so that that was a nice pair for you then. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Fun stuff to look at. Uh, yeah. But while I had you, I had uh, another one. You had talked about changing tenses in yep. telling stories. Yep. Sometimes, and I don't know if it's just a natural um, raconteur, but there mm -hmm. are people who will switch to present tense to and to make the story more impactful. Like yeah. I went to the mall and I hit this, you know, I ran across this guard and this guard comes up to me and now here I am, I'm blah, yeah. blah, blah. And they yeah. break it down into a narrative that yeah. wouldn't necessarily be deception. Maybe it's a slight embellishment or exaggeration, but would you call it a deception necessarily? No. And so here's the thing with that. I usually look for verb tense changes in uh, written statements. Right. Mm. It, it's a little more accurate because at that point, you're really thinking about your thoughts and the words that you're putting down at paper. But when people speak, sometimes that thought process doesn't really happen. And so it's just coming out, coming out. Um, but when we tend to write, we take a little more time to think. And so it's more deliberate, I would say. Mm. But I always tell people, listen, um, you cannot use just that one indicator. It's got to be followed up with a whole bunch of other things. I, when I teach my law enforcement classes, I go through a verbal indicator of deception called the text bridge. Mm -hmm. And the text bridge is a chunk of words that jump over a period of time and a period of information. Right. It doesn't mean it's a lie. It just means that there's more information within that chunk of time. It may be important. It may not be. It may be a lie. It may not be. You, as the, as the interviewer, have to go find that out and dig for that. So when I tell the story of my own personal text bridge, which was not a lie and was drowned when I was young, mm -hmm. my story goes from past to present, past to present, past to present. And it's truthful. I'm not lying. So why do we do that? Is it because I don't have the answer. Um, and I don't know if there's anybody out there that does, but it could be because we're recalling this event. And of course, this event happened when I was 13 years ago, uh, 13 years old. That's a long time ago. You know, I'm picturing it in my mind. I'm picturing the beach. I'm doing this visual. Um, I have to piece together all the, the memory bits in my long-term memory, pull them forward, and, you know, since it happened so long ago, most of it's gone. Um, and so when I create the story, I'm working for just a few known bits of information. As I have to tell it in a story format, I got to fill it in with kind of made up information. Right. And so that's that present tense comes in. So mm. the known bits, which would make no sense if I just said one after the other, uh, past tense. But when I start to weave it into the story, I end up going past the present, past the present. So that one can be very tricky, very tricky. It can also be tricky too, right? Because, okay, one, you said, I can tell you one thing it can be, uh, hypnosis. Now, I know that sounds weird, but the truth is that we go into a theta state all the time. How yeah. did I get to work? What did I see? I don't remember. I just drove. Um, yeah. Other things, I think, are filters. Like, especially if something's very, very impactful on the other side of it. I might forget that I got gas on the way home that day because who yeah. cares? I get, get, it's just something that I did. And 
you know, I might go to the eat the same restaurant every day because I like fast food and I go to McDonald's every day, every day. That day I uh, went to McDonald's, got gas and went home. I might completely bypass it. So I guess my question would be, isn't it true that a truthful person often will come out with more and more information sometimes over time and somebody being deceitful might be so on their story that it never deviates in any way, shape or form? Totally. Totally. I tell people this, listen, details are going to be the death of the lie in one or two ways. Number one, they're not going to be there because it's too much effort to make them up and remember. Or number two, they're going to be there because the lie is trying to convince you. Oh, wow. That's a truth teller too. This is why detecting deception is so hard. When I teach it, I teach people, not only are you looking for the indicators of deception, you have mm. got to be looking for the indicators of truthfulness, too. Mm. If you're not looking for the truth, you're never going to be able to determine whether or not that person's lying or what they're lying about. So in that second video, I had to look, you know, for both. Right. And there are indicators of both. And then you weigh how many are indicators of truthfulness versus deceptive. But then the, the real... um I, think, I guess the real critical moment comes when you are the interviewer is to getting the truth. Because even though I'm really good at detecting lies, I don't know. I don't know until that person has said, Lena, I lied to you. Here's the truth. Mm. Right? How am I going to know? What's and what's so funny, and I, I am going to get into the second video. You see, this is called a tease. Everybody yes. needs to watch at the end. And by the way, yeah. subscribe. <laughs> now, congruency is kind of what you're teaching and you can sense these things. Sorry, I'm trying to, to word it well. What I feel is we've already know all of this stuff. This is actually built into us biologically, but we have completely taken it out of our systems because we read papers, watch TV. We depend on the internet and computers to tell us what to think or feel. But these things like Gavin DePecker talks about the gift of fear things like that. Instinctively, we actually have all the tools. We do. And I think you've stated that before too, that if somebody bothers you or something about them bothers you, you're probably right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just when you go to a body language class, now you have terminology to put to it. I always tell people, go with your gut feeling because what you're doing is intuitively you're already picking up on the indicators. You just don't know what to call them. Okay. So Exactly. And now let's lead into video number two. And and this one was trickier, too, because I think there's cultural differences. Um, there's also, I would fear, especially because I fed you the videos in this order, too, so I could pl plant a confirmation bias. Yes. I give you somebody who seems so completely guilty and then say, oh, and here's the guy he had do it. So is, and that's another segue. Do you have to watch out for your own confirmation bias that, oh. you know, they're a liar coming in? All in your mind? the time, all the time. I tell people, stop the internal chatter. If you have a little voice inside you going, they're going to be guilty. I know they're guilty. Well, this team detainees in Gitmo for a reason. It must be because they did something bad. You're done. You're done because now you're basing all of your um, analysis on an expectation or an assumption, and it's going to be askew. It's going to be very subjective. So I set you up that way. And you you managed to fight it off and tell me about the video. Want the information? What you want to know? What, well, I, you, I you were the one. That. Yeah, you you will be the one asking the question. Okay. All right. Where were you when Greg Fall was killed? 
Orange Wall. So can you tell me the real story? About... So around that time, did John ask you to do something and give you any money, like $5,000? Around that time? Mm-hmm. No. No? No, never. Didn't have any incident or anything going down. Nothing like that at that point. All right, poof, let's get into this video. So <clears throat> I'm going to walk through it a little kind of segment by segment. And I, and I wrote notes, which I'm referencing. Awesome. Overall, this guy has closed body language. Okay, so he's he's very tight and very closed. It just tells me he's covering up. He feels uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. He has clenched hands. We clench our hands. It's almost as though we don't want our body to do anything we didn't expect it to do, right? So we're controlling ourselves. And usually those two things will tip me off. Why do you feel the need to control yourself? Right? Because truthful people don't care what their hands do or their body does and just let it go. But people who have something to hide usually clench up, right? Also, just, people being filmed. Yeah, but you just took the words out of my okay. mouth. I was just going to say, as well as people who are just darn nervous because of being filmed on camera. Oh my gosh. Wow. This has got like a, a mind reading thing Uh-oh. going on, right? So, is he nervous because he's lying or is he nervous because he's being filmed for this and being asked if he got paid $5,000 to kill someone? I would be really nervous, right? So that aside, mm-hmm. he's super delight and contempt throughout the whole thing. But is that his baseline? I don't know this guy from Adam, and this is the only video I've seen. And all throughout it, he does a little smile. Paul Eichmann dubbed it Duper's Delight, and then he leaves contempt, this, right? The little mm-hmm. one half smile. Usually, I will say with good amount of accuracy, when a liar lies to me right after they lie, they, I got away with it. Like it's almost, it, it's so high up there for the accuracy. So he does that. And then he has a convincing technique going on. So remember that yes or no question I talked about? Mm-hmm. A truthful person doesn't feel they have to oversell it. They answer yes, they answer no, done with it. Sometimes they may add a little bit. But a person who says no, or never for no, or always for yes. It's mm-hmm. almost as though they're trying convincing us, and liars tend to convince us. Why are you smiling? Because that's it's weird. So you're trying to tell me that you paid me for? I told him that. So no, man, that's crazy. No. No. So you didn't get five thousand dollars wired into your account? No, never. So some people said they saw you that night, and and you went to John's house. No. No, never. 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 This guy answered almost every yes or no question. No, never. No, never. But is that his baseline? Right. right? So I don't know because I don't know this guy. When I don't know the baseline, I have to take those indicators and throw them in the trash because they don't mean anything to me. So I got to look for something else. Um, What I did notice was this. Kept wiping his forehead. Mm -hmm. Now that's an indicator of stress, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's sweating so that was like finally that kind of a giggle too he had oh well we'll get into that he yes because i can't tell you how many liars i've had that just bust up laughing and i'm like why are you laughing what is so funny i'm not laughing you know and it's because of the i don't know what it is the stress of lying or they're just trying to that little smirk like the uh this is gonna be terrible and i i know it's rude but everybody in the universe i think is guilty of of farting and not having people know it. And it's, uh, it, it might be a horrible analogy, but it is kind of like that whole <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> crazy <laughs> farting <laughs> secret. 
That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I love that analogy. I love it. So let's start off. So the interviewer, she says, um, so around that time, did John ask you to do something and give you any money, like $5,000? He says, no. And, or he doesn't say no. He doesn't answer yes and no. Remember, I'm looking for that immediate yes and right. no. That indicates to list. Instead, he clarifies what she says. Around that time, and I was like, ping, now we have some meat to work with, right? Mm. Instead of focusing on answering the question and being paid money to kill someone, he's focused on what? That time, mm -hmm. around that time. So that tells you where his brain is right now and where he's concerned. Then she's, the interviewer goes, mm-hmm. And he leaks the contempt and the dupers, the little laughing. And he says, no, never. But here's my issue. Too. He was congruent, right? So behavioral congruency is one of the most, I think, accurate ways to detect deception. If you're incongruent, probably uh, deceptive. If you're congruent, probably truthful. So he says, no, and he, no, never. Shakes his head no. That's pretty legit. And then he follows up and he says, no, never congruent. No, no incident going down. Not at that time. So now mm. twice I have him clarifying that time. Um, that leads me to believe that something else happened. Another incident. But what was it? Right. So that mm. that's what right now. I can't tell you if he's lying or being truthful in that response, but I can tell you there's something else he's thinking about <laughs> another time. And I would have to ask him. So then she uh, goes on and um, he starts laughing and she catches him and she says something like, uh, you know, why are you laughing? And he goes, oh, no, ma'am. Well, that's just crazy. And as soon as he says that's crazy, he nods yes. So why is he making that? Some people... You know, when we talk about incongruent head nods and shakes. Mm. And if I said, um, absolutely, uh, what, you know, yes, yes, yes. And my head shakes, no. People are like, ha ha, you're lying. Most of the time, but there are some times when people say no and they do one quick nod. I actually do it in my TED talk where it's that nod has nothing to do with yes and no. That well, nod is a punctuator. Bingo. No, bingo. no idea. It's same as if you were going to sling a finger at somebody. Like, Yes. Now, sometimes liars do it to convince, but I will tell you, a lot of truthful people do it. I do it all the time, all the time. So you have to be careful. So the reason when he says, well, no, ma'am, that's crazy. And he punctuates that, right? Is he punctuating like legitimately? That's crazy. It didn't happen. So she goes on. So you didn't get 5,000 into your wired into your account. Again, he goes, no, never. He's congruent again, right? Mm. And he's still saying never. And he's still doing the contempt and duper's delight. So he's still laughing. We're still having flashing contempt. And then we have him um, doing the never, right? But I still mm. think the no, never is his, his language baseline. Right. When we come down to when she says people saw him that night, that's where he's going to get busted. Because at that point, he bites his lip. Okay. Impossible. Maybe my twin. I don't know. I don't have a twin anyway. So you were not hired by John no. Kilgrave Fox? No, never. And if you were, would you tell me? No. I, well, I'm not crazy to tell someone I've, I killed someone. It's ridiculous, you know? Mm. But I was never paid by John to kill anyone. So I, I was trying to understand why someone would say this. I want to know right now, too. Who gave you that information? I cannot tell you. Okay. So do you have an alibi? I, I don't need an alibi. I was home. We were having a wedding at that time. 
So our family member was there. My sister was marrying. Mm-hmm. Right, which is self-control. Mm. And you went to John's house, she says. He says, no, never again. But this time he swipes away. He can't look her in the eye as he does this. And he does this. All before about um, with the $5,000, he never does this. Never wipes his head. Right. And she starts talking about being at John's house that night. I get new indicators and I get swiping the head. Um, then he adds fluff. Well, maybe it's my twin. So we call that the smoke screen. To me, that's a huge indicator of he's trying to hide something. Right. So mm. there's something about him being at his house that night that I think he's being deceptive about. Mm. I don't know about this $5,000. I'm wondering, though, and you probably didn't see the whole documentary, but the person oh, I, who said that he paid him the $5,000, I'm like, well, did you skim a grand off the top and pay him $4,000? Then he would be absolutely truthful. No, absolutely not. Bingo. Bingo. Or. Did he pay him $5,000, but for something else or at another time? Remember that first question? Mm-hmm. Twice he was clarifying. At that time? At that time? No, not at that time. So did he get paid the 5000 at another time for something else? And John McAfee admits having every drug known to man. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so who, what was he paid with? What happened? Not sure. I'm not a mind reader. And then finally... You were not hired by John Childer. John, she says something to interview. I couldn't make up the name. So she says, you're not hired by John. He said, no, never again. He was congruent. I was never paid by John to kill anyone. Mm. That's a pretty definitive, truthful sentence. But here's my problem. The new indicators come out with the fact about that night that he was at John's house. Right. He mm-hmm. clearly the anxiety increases. You can see it. You can see new indicators. So there was something around that. The other thing is when uh, he kept clarifying at that time with the money. So that's another part. So we have two things where I think he's being deceptive and there's more information. But other than that, I don't know this guy. I've never seen another video with him. I've mm. never had a, just a normal conversation, a relaxed conversation. I can't baseline him. So I don't know if the no never is something he always says. I don't know if the duper's delight in the contempt is because that's his, what he normally does or if he's just super, super nervous. Um, but I do think he's being deceptive in those two areas. Oh, perfect. And I want to wrap up on that one and ask you, I've asked yeah. other guests too, I do a live stream where I give an opportunity for my audience and my guest's audience to have people ask questions in the chat during the live stream. And I was wondering if you'd be interested in doing that because we've got a nice start here and it'll be fun to follow up on this with people writing in their own questions. Yeah, absolutely. See, I'm being congruent. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I said, absolutely not. Yes. Right. It's a lot going on to the science. You know, it's funny, though, you mentioned that. And God, I, I can think of exceptions to everything, like people who equivocate all the time. Mm-hmm. You went to Brown. I guarantee there are some of your professors that would drive you crazy because they would always equivocate or say actually or would never give you a straightforward answer. So yeah, almost any tell you're talking about can actually be ah, actually. Um, 
terrible. And I can tell you this from interviewing because I will edit and it can be frustrating when I edit somebody who stops every sentence. They start a phrase, pivot, and then say the rest. Start a phrase, pivot, and say the rest. And what it is, is it's like reading an academic paper. Every time you read them, it is such a meandering flow of garbage. It is frustrating. Yeah. (laughs) It can be. Oh, my gosh, it can be. Yeah. But you are not a meandering flow. And (laughs) can find out more about you at the congruency group. ah, Congruencygroup.com. Yes. And your book is called, shortly, You're Lying. Yes. And I actually have, I just got picked up to publish my third book from HarperCollins on interviewing. And it's more of a leadership role, but it's interviewing for any type of investigative gap, uh, information gathering. It could be for hiring, for recruiting, for anything. So a lot of interpersonal communication skills. Love that. And look forward to that. So until next time. All right. Thank you so much for listening. It means a lot to me. And I also wanted to shout out a couple of friends of mine. Christopher Lockhead, who is practically a mentor to me, is doing something this past 30 days called a pod storm. You can find that under Lockhead on Marketing. And I'd also like to shout out Jason DeFilippo. I've shouted him out before. He's another great friend, and he hosts the show Grumpy Old Geeks. I fit into that description myself, and I think you will really enjoy that show. So check both of them out on your podcast player of choice. Thanks again.